God, we thank you for today, this moment to open your word and to study from it and learn what you would have us do as your children. And so God, I pray that you give us uh, hearts that are wide open to receive from your word today. God, that our ears are not plugged, that we do not callous our heart to the conviction of the Holy Spirit today, but we are open to being challenged, corrected, encouraged uh, by your word today. So God, we thank you for this moment and pray that it is uh, bringing you glory as we are learning and growing in what it means to be more Christ-like. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. amen. Okay, we've been in a series called Luke, the orderly account of truth. Luke did an investigated and uh, investigated account of everything that Jesus did and taught. And he gave it to Theophilus so he would have certainty about the exact truth about what he had been taught or about the things that had been fulfilled among them. And the cool thing is, is we get that same blessing and benefit of knowing the exact truth because we're reading Luke's gospel account, which is amazing. And last week we saw some men carry their paralyzed friend to Jesus to be healed. They literally carried him on a mat. They were willing to do whatever it took, which included carrying him up on top of a roof, digging through the roof, like literally tearing apart someone's roof, which wasn't theirs, by the way. I realize that. It's like literally going on somebody else's house and just tearing a hole in their roof. wonder how the owners felt about that. Anyway, they were willing to do whatever it took to get their friend to Jesus. They had faith that Jesus could heal him. And they said, this might be our only shot. This might be the one shot we get, so we're going to take our friend to Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he forgave the man. He said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Which what that did was show that Jesus is God in the flesh, and he has the authority to forgive sins. He has the authority on earth to forgive sins. So it's Jesus claiming to be God, which is amazing. And then, just to put the cherry on top, he healed the man to say, see, I wasn't lying. I told you I was telling the truth. I am he. He is me, I said, I think, last week which is weird. Jesus is God in the flesh. He healed the man to show that what he was saying was the truth. He performed that miracle to validate the message he was teaching. We also talked about not being like the crowd, right? The crowd that was huddled up looking at Jesus, boxing out the paralyzed man, right? As we get in this Christian holy huddle, which we love the fellowship, sometimes we turn our back on the people who need to see Jesus the most. So we're, we were talking about not being like the crowd. We should be like the men who carry their friend to Jesus to do the hard work of bringing people to Jesus, to tell them the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, which I kind of wanted to take a pause here. I call it a little side note. The main way that, that the Lord saves people is through us telling them the good news about Jesus, right? We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 says as if God sent us to make his appeal through us. That's what we're called to do. So we should absolutely, definitely go out and tell people the good news of Jesus. But we should also invite them to the fellowship. We should invite them to church because we're always going to be, like, we're in the Bible. We're literally in the Gospel of Luke. We are going to be talking about the Gospel of Jesus Christ every single time we open the Bible. So this is also a way to help them get exposure to the Gospel message is inviting them to come with you to church. And then you sit with them. And then when there's seats open in the front row, because I made the whole fr- second row come to the front row, pull them up to the second row. Why not? You guys can sit closer. I don't think I spit. All these guys will let you know after service. <laughs> They're like the news, not the weather. I'm, I thank you for that pity laugh. That was terrible. I don't even know where I'm at in the message. So we, are, we should be in telling people about Jesus and inviting them to church because we're going to talk about the gospel here. We have no clue where they're at on their journey, right? 
We don't know if God has, has been drawing them to, to already to himself, and they're like, I don't know, I feel like I need to come to church, and they have just have never been invited, right? So God could already be moving in their heart. Maybe they heard the gospel message, that seed planted in the past, and they're just waiting for, to be invited. And you could be that person that God uses in their journey or in their, uh, in their part of their walk of becoming a Christian. So preach the gospel and invite people to church. We do both, not neglecting one or the other. But before we read the text uh, for this week, I have a simple question. Who's ever had like a major injury? Something that's like a, a big injury that... Um, it's like right after it happened, you're trying to stand up and everyone's like, sit down. And you're like, why is everyone telling me to sit down? You're trying to stand up. And they're like, you don't realize how bad the injury is yet, right? Uh, luckily, I've never been injured that bad before because I always know. And I'm like, I need to sit down for a minute. Um, so give me a second. I'll be with you. So this major injury that knocks you down and maybe you're getting up and everyone's like, you need to just sit down for a second, brother. Like, calm down. Or maybe, uh, maybe it isn't you or, or maybe it's like somebody you know. Uh, but have you ever seen someone who was clearly injured but swore up and down that they were fine? There's nothing wrong. They're like, we're all looking at them, and you're clearly injured. Like, no, I'm good. You know, they're, uh, they're someone's, someone's walking like this. I'm fine. And like, everyone around you is looking. You're not fine. There is something clearly wrong. You can't even stand up, and you can't even walk straight. You're walking funny. They're oblivious to the fact that they're walking funny. Maybe they'll say, this is how I always walk. This is how I always live my life. Or maybe they're just too stubborn to admit that something is wrong. We all know people who have done that. Maybe it's been us. Refusing to go to the doctor for one reason or the other. But either way, it's obvious to everyone but the person that they need it. It's obvious to everyone else who's looking at this person except for them that they need to go see a doctor. And I think in a roundabout way, that's exactly how Jesus was describing the Pharisees in our text today. That Jesus was looking at the Pharisees and saying, something is clearly wrong with you, and you need a doctor, but they're like, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm just fine. Jesus continues to go against the grain of what the religious elite thought was right. They did the opposite, or he would do things that, th that they would consider unclean or unright or wrong in their eyes. And in the process, Jesus helps us understand who he actually came to reach. He makes it clear that it isn't those who think that they're good. It's those who know there is something wrong with them. That's who Jesus came to reach. And so today's message is simply titled, The Sick Need a Doctor. The Sick Need a Doctor. Are my boys taking notes? Did you write down the sermon title? He's like, no, not yet. <laughs> There's going to be a test. You're supposed to test me after. Okay. <laughs> The sick need a doctor. Um, we're going to read through our text today. It's in Luke chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 27 through 32, which is only six verses. So we'll be through it in no time, right? Yes. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one from the back um, table. We have one sitting there, and we have a bunch more available. So Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. I saw the hand go up. I knew what the question was. Okay, you guys turn there if you got your Bibles. All right, let's go ahead and read the text for today. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But 
the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And I might be reading into this a little bit, but it seems like Jesus might have given a little bit of snark in his last answer there, but we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But at this point in the story, Jesus had already called Peter, or Simon, sometimes you'll see him referred to as Simon Peter, James and John to follow him. They had left their profession of being fishermen to follow Jesus and become fishers of people. And now we see Jesus call his next disciple, Levi. So go back to verse 27 for me. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. Okay, so after, after this, after what? Well, what just happened right before in the story? After Jesus had healed the paralyzed man on the mat, this is what happened. So it's after he did that, and we get to know, now we get to know who this Levi guy is that he's calling next as one of his disciples to follow him. Who is this Levi guy? Well, he was a tax collector. And tax collectors are, which have already been referenced in, in Luke, but I'm excited for us to get to talk about him because it's going to, we're going to understand um, some, some really big heart issues later on in the Pharisees. But the tax collectors were some of the most despised people by the Jews. The reason they were so despised is because they were viewed as traitors to their own people by their own people. Because they were the Jews who collected the taxes from the Jews for Rome. So Rome would say, okay, you owe taxes. We need someone to be a representative to collect those taxes, right? Here come the Jewish tax collectors. They would sit at the tax booths and they would collect taxes. However, what they would also do is if they were required to, to like, collect this much in taxes, uh, what the Roman government said is anything above that that you collect, you can keep. That's your pay. So what did they do? The wickedness of their heart, they would collect a lot more than that, and they would get to keep all that as their own pay for their position. And if you remember back in Luke th- uh, chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, it's not going to be on the verse or on the screen, But John called him out and said, don't collect more than you are required to. When the tax collectors came to get baptized, they're like, well, what should we do? And he's like, don't collect more taxes than you you are required to. That was one thing he said to them. But they were extremely wealthy at the expense of the Jews. So they were considered some of the worst sinners around. They hated the tax collectors. And that is the job that Levi had. He is the tax collector. And it's funny, because when you think about the types of people that God calls, like you look at the tax collectors or just read basically any of the Bible and, and who Jesus called, are you really that surprised that he called you? <laughs> You're not nearly as bad as some of the people he called. Not that it's a comparison game, but you shouldn't be surprised that he called you out of your place to follow him as well because of all the other types of people that he called. So speaking of Levi and his name, we see Levi here, uh, but just like Peter, he's known by another name as well. Okay? Levi had a second name. His other name was Matthew, the same Matthew who wrote the book of Matthew or the gospel of Matthew. Uh, if you read through this story in the book of Mark, it's also, he's also references Luke. But if we turn to Matthew chapter 9, we'll see Levi with his other name. So let's read through here and starting in verse 9 of chapter 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner with, uh, at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him, and 
his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Does that sound a little familiar? It's almost exactly like our text for today, right? So we see here that Levi and Matthew are the same guy. It's just this other name. So just like Simon Peter had two names, Matthew and Levi are the same name. Okay, you tracking? Making sense? Sweet. Let's get back to our text. Let's go back to verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi or Matthew sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. So Jesus comes across Levi when he's at his tax booth. He's sitting in the booth that he would be sitting in every day when he's collecting taxes, uh, just doing his job by the Sea of Galilee, which means he probably was taxing all the fishermen too, which would have made, made the fact that he was called and Peter, James, and John had already been called some interesting interpersonal relationship issues there. If this is the guy who's been overtaxing us and our family because we're fishermen, I just wonder what the conversations were like, you know? So he calls, the, uh, calls out to Levi and says, follow me. And Levi would have heard about who Jesus is and what he'd been doing already. Why? Because Jesus had been doing miracles in, in the area and literally everyone was talking about it. So much that crowds so big were gathering that no one could get to them. Get to him, excuse me. So they would, he would have known and heard about who Jesus was. So it wasn't like some stranger walked up to him and said, hey, follow me. It was more like a local celebrity walking up. It's like, wait a minute, I've heard of this Jesus guy and what he does. Not just some random person coming up to him. And for him, I, like, as I was sitting here thinking about it, I was like, maybe it felt like winning the lottery a little bit to Levi. Because think about it. Levi, or the, Levi, because he was a tax collector, was hated by the Jews and the Pharisees. And Jesus, who's been doing what only God can do, right? He's been going around doing the miracles and forgiving only the things that only God can do, came right up to, to Levi and said, follow me, like accepted him. Everyone else doesn't accept the tax collectors. The Jews and the Pharisees reject the tax collectors, yet the one who's doing what only God can do came and accepted him. That would seem pretty awesome. I'm sure he was extremely shocked, just like everybody else is shocked. Why would Jesus come to a tax collector? but that he accepted him. And he responded by answering the call. Look at the next verse. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. He got up, he left everything, and followed him. And we need to talk about this for a second, the fact that he left everything. He didn't first say, let me pack up everything. No, he got up and left it all and followed Jesus. He left his job which is, you know, might, might not seem like a big deal, but it was a really big deal to leave a tax collecting job, which made him extremely wealthy. It's a very hard job to get. Nobody leaves that job, which means if he gets up and walks out of his tax booth, somebody else is going to come and sit down, and he no longer has a job to come back to. So it's a big deal that he would leave this particular job that he has no way to get back once he leaves the position. He is literally leaving everything Behind, He decided in that moment to leave it all behind to follow this man, Jesus. And he may not have known it yet, but this is the greatest decision he ever could have made in his entire life. The greatest decision. And that is our first main point for today. Following Jesus is worth leaving everything behind. 
following Jesus is worth leaving everything behind. There's nothing that we could hold on to in this life that is better than a life that is following after Jesus. There's nothing we could hold on to. There's nothing better than being face-to-face with him. And in the future, eternal, eternity face-to-face with him. Everything else will pale in comparison. And uh, Pastor Duncan and I were talking earlier this week, and he reminded me of a particular passage in Philippians, um, which, by the way, is a great, it's great to have friends who love God's word as well, because it's a big book, and you forget a lot of stuff, and sometimes they'll point great truths out to you. Um, So I'm very grateful that he pointed this out. But let's look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider, this is Paul speaking to the church in Philippi. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. The worth of knowing Jesus surpasses the worth of anything you could think or imagine. Anything you could think or imagine. Knowing Christ far surpasses that in worth. There's nothing more valuable than knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. Just stop and think about it for a second. Is there anything that you can think of that is more valuable than being forgiven of all your sin to get to live in peace face-to-face with the creator for eternity in perfect paradise when he creates all things new? I can't think of anything. I can think of nothing that is better than that. Nothing on this earth is eternal. Everything fades. It erodes. It disintegrates. Moths chew holes in it. It's never going to last. We have to take our eyes off of the temporal or the temporary, and we have to put our eyes on the eternal to set our minds on things above is the way the Bible puts it, not on earthly things. Know what holds true and everlasting value. Everything else fades. So following Jesus is worth leaving everything behind. And later on in Luke chapter 14, I'm going to reference a little bit further in Luke a couple times, but I'm not going to go there too much because we want to preach it when we get there. But later on in Luke 14, Jesus gives the large crowd that's following him a big warning. He tells them to count the costs before following him, to count the costs, that before they become disciples of his, that they will need to know that it will cost them everything. That they must give up everything to be his disciples. And it's the exact same for us today. It's the same for us. We must be ready to leave everything behind to follow Jesus. Does he ask everyone to sell all their possessions and give everything they have to the poor? No. But he does ask some. He does ask some. And that means this. The disciples of Jesus must be ready to let everything else go. The disciples of Jesus must be ready to let everything else go. We have to be open-handed about everything else but Jesus. And what I mean by that is like, the harder we hold on to something, the more, I mean, this is kind of cheesy, but the more it has a hold of our heart. 
we need to be willing to open our hand and have an open-handed about what open-handed uh, view about whatever it is, being willing to let everything go for the sake of following Jesus, who is our Lord. Plus, it's all his anyway. It's not even ours. It's all his. And I want to look at what Elisha did when Elijah called out to him. And that's in uh, 1 Kings chapter 19. I think this is a beautiful example of what we're talking about. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also, anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel. And anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel to succeed you as prophet. I was doing so well for a while there. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to the Baal and, excuse me, down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. So pause right here. Those are Elijah's instructions from the Lord, okay? We tracking? Go and anoint and appoint all these people. That's the, the crux. Verse 19, so Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elijah then left the oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother. Goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? Might not make much sense. He's basically saying like, do whatever you want, man. What's it matter to me? That's a way of saying that. He's like, what do, you, what do you think I actually did, right? Elisha understood what, he, what Elijah had just done. So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. This is all an Old Testament view of kind of what we're talking about. But if, did you see how Elisha responded? Did you see how he responded when God called him through the mouth of the prophet Elijah? He went back, killed the oxen, burned the plowing equipment, and had a barbecue, <laughs> which sounds delicious. Now, this is a guy who said, I will give up everything to follow God. I will give it up, all of it. I'm getting rid of everything, so I have no reason to go back. He is literally destroyed. He killed the animals, burned the plowing equipment, so I have nothing to go back to because I've decided I will answer the call and I will follow the Lord. That's what, he under- that's what the call was. That's what he understood. And he understood the decision he was making. He was willing to let it all go, and that's how we should view being a disciple of Jesus willing to get rid of everything, to leave it all behind for the sake of following Jesus. Because just like Paul said in Philippians, it's all garbage when you compare it to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not even worth it. No matter what it is, it's not even worth it. Levi was ready to leave it all behind, so he got up and answered Jesus' call to follow him. Let's keep moving in verse 29. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. Okay, so Levi got up to follow Jesus, and then he threw a party for him at his house. That's what he did. Threw a party for Jesus at his own house. And do you guys remember when you first met Jesus? Do you remember that day? 
Do you remember when, uh, or maybe, maybe it was like you experienced him for real? Or I like to say, like, you actually acknowledged that it was him working the whole time. But do you remember that day? Do you remember what you felt on the inside? That uncontainable joy? That, like, I, it's just, like, spilling out. I got to tell everybody about who this Jesus guy is or more specifically what he did in my life? Do you guys remember that day? That's what Levi is doing. He had literally just met Jesus. And he is like, I can't contain how amazing this person is that I just met, and I have to tell my friends about it. So he goes and throws a party. He throws a party and invites all of his friends to tell him about Jesus. And I think that that's the same thing that we, this might be a good challenge for us or something that we need to consider uh, in our own lives, but we need to remember when you first met Jesus and reignite your joy. Go back and remember when you first met Jesus and let that, that joy just get reignited in you. Uh, it's John Piper who says that joy isn't fully complete until it's been expressed. And you know this to be true because, and, and we've talked about this before, but if you went to an awesome and saw an awesome movie that's like now your favorite movie, or you ate the greatest meal you've ever had in your life, you had to tell somebody about it. Your joy was not complete, and you said, I just had the greatest steak I've ever had in my life. Or this movie, you're never going to believe it. It's the greatest movie you've ever seen. Your joy is not complete. It's not made complete until you've expressed that joy. We need to remember. Remember that joy and let it be complete in us by expressing it, go back and remember that moment you first met Jesus. Because it's easy for us to forget. Over time, we get busy or focus on other things. And it's easy for us to forget. And we lose that excitement to tell others about the most incredible person to ever have walked this earth. The God-man Jesus. It's the one who is worth leaving everything else behind to follow. Why do you think the Israelites set up stone, like stacks, stacks of stones everywhere? It's so that every time they walked by and they're like, oh, this is to remember when God did this in our lives. It's, and, when the, and they even say, like when the kids would walk by and say, well, what is this, dad? And he's like, son, this is when the Lord followed through or came through for the, the children of Israel or, or did this amazing thing. It's to remind us. So maybe we need to stack some stones in our life. That's not even a point I have for today. But maybe we need to stack some stones in our life to remind us of the amazing things God's done in our lives. The amazing forgiveness that we received through Jesus. We need to go back and remember that. That's the greatest thing ever. And let it reignite our joy so that we can share with people this uncontainable joy. So do what Levi did and tell your friends. Throw a party if you have to. Everyone shows up when there's going to be food. Right? We're literally going to eat food tonight. It's going to be amazing. I'm here. June's ready. Okay, Levi threw a party for Jesus and his tax collectors and sinner friends showed up. How do you think the Pharisees felt about that? Well, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged, and, uh, the law who belonged to their sect complained to the disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the sinner, oh, excuse me, the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? How dare you hang out with those filthy sinners? 
That's what the Pharisees are saying. And the name Pharisee comes from a word that literally means the separate, separated ones. So they wouldn't be caught dead mixing with the unclean ones or the sinners, the unholy ones. Yet they see Jesus just like chilling with sinners. He's just hanging out with them. And this is what I meant when I said that Jesus would go against the grain of the religious elite. He would often do this. And it's always for a specific reason. He would do what they would never think of doing. Remember when he touched the leper? That was a huge no-no. A Pharisee or a religious elite at the time would never do that because it would make them unclean. Yet Jesus did it. He would do what they would never dream of doing. And then he immediately tells us why he's doing it, which is in verse 31. Can we go to verse 31? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He says he's here to help those who are sick. That's why Jesus is here. Those who know they need help. The ones who know that something is wrong. And this is why I think Jesus is being a little snarky to them, maybe. Because they are like the people that we were talking about at the beginning who had a major injury and thought everything was just fine. They thought that, every, that there was nothing wrong with them. But it's obvious when you look on the outside, excuse me, when Jesus from the outside is looking at the heart, but others looking on the outside, they're like, no, something's obviously wrong with this. And Jesus is continually calling it out. It's obvious there's something wrong. It's obvious that they're walking funny, and they have no clue. And there is no one who is more in need of a doctor than someone who's fatally sick and doesn't know it. There's no one who needs a doctor more. The Pharisees looked in the mirror and they say, yep, nailing it, perfect Jew. That's what they would look in the mirror and say. But they had no clue how far off they were, even though Jesus would call them out all the time. There was no way they would ever consider themselves among the sick and someone who needed help. And then Jesus finishes this whole thing out by verse uh, 32. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The righteous don't need to be told to repent because they're already righteous. Sinners need to be told to repent so they can become righteous. So if the Pharisees, in their case, if they thought they already were righteous, then Jesus is effectively saying, I'm not here for you. I'm here for them. Which is a big slap in the face. Say, okay, you're good. Fine. You think you're good? Then go be good. I'm here for those who know they're not. I think it's the first, I don't think, I know, it's the first part of understanding the gospel is knowing that there's something wrong and that they're sick. It's knowing that there's a problem and something needs to be fixed. And I've said it before, um, but this big point here, it is loving for God to show us our sin. It's loving for God to show us our sin. It's the loving thing that God would tell you you're broken and need to be fixed, to tell you you're fatally sick or fatally wounded and need care. You need to see the doctor. That is loving. Think about it. If you saw somebody walking towards a busy street blindfolded and there's cars going back and forth, what's the loving thing to do? Tell them to stop. Don't warn them. Tell them they're going to get hit by a car. The loving thing is to tell them what you're doing is not good. You need to stop. That's the loving thing to do, to warn them. If somebody's fatally sick and doesn't know it, the most loving thing to do is say, brother, you have a, a cancer that you need to be cured of. And that's what the Lord does. He makes us aware of our brokenness and shows us our need of a Savior or to be saved. 
Psalm 14, I'm just gonna go through three quick scriptures here that won't be on the screen, but Psalm 14 says that God looks down from heaven and sees that there is no one who seeks him and there's no one who does good. Ephesians 2 tells us that every single one of us was dead in our transgressions and sins and followed the ways of the world. And Romans 3 says that every single person has sinned and falls short of God's perfect standard. So what point am I making by bringing up those scriptures? This next point. We were all sick before we saw the doctor. All of us were sick before we, before we got to see the doctor. And this fact alone should keep us humble. We should never become haughty because of this fact alone, which scripture just repeats over and over and over again. It should help us never become like the Pharisees who looked down on those who didn't, they didn't deem as righteous, which was according to their own standards. It wasn't even God's standards. This should prevent us from becoming like that. Jesus came to the sick as their doctor. He came to call sinners to repentance. And a little further in Luke, he says it um, slightly differently when he meets a different tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus. And everyone who knows who Zacchaeus is laughing because I'm the shortest person in this room. And Zacchaeus was a short dude. Where are my short kings at? He was so short, Jesus comes to town. He climbs a tree because he can't see above the crowds. So he's looking at Jesus from a tree. And Jesus comes to the tree and calls him out of the tree and said, I'm going to eat at your house tonight. Uh, he says some cool stuff after that, which I'm going to say for whenever we get to this part in Luke when we preach it. But the people saw Jesus call him down out of the tree and say, I'm going to come eat at your house, and started wondering why Jesus was hanging out with sinners again. And this is what Jesus said in Luke 19. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Those who are lost or separated from the flock. That's who Jesus came. That's who Jesus came for, excuse me. Luke also talks about uh, the parable of the lost sheep in Luke 15. That, and he says, if you had 100 sheep and lost one, wouldn't you leave the 99 to go find the one? Like, just practically speaking, you would leave the 99, like, hey, make sure they're good, and then you'd go find the one. You would leave the 99 to go find the one. And that there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. We would leave the 99 to go find the one. This is what Jesus came to do. Seek and save the lost, to be a doctor to the sick, to call sinners to repentance. Can I have the band come up, wherever you guys are at, please? Play those tasty jams, right, Cardi? So as we're kind of, I want to bring everything to a close, but I want to recap kind of how we can apply all the things that we've learned from today. Just give them a minute. Uh, the first uh, point I want to make out of the first application point is if you are not a believer and you're in here today, uh, what I mean by not a believer is someone who you've never believed in your heart that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross for your sins, that he rose from the dead, and you've never confessed that belief out loud. That's what I mean by a non-believer. Uh, your application point for today is exactly what Jesus said, which is repent of your sins and believe in Jesus for salvation. This is what we're all called to when we're in that uh, dead in our sins and, tra and, and in our transgressions and sins. This is 
all of what our call call is. Um, this is when it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God or his perfect standard. This is what we all need to do. Every single believer has done this, repented of our sins and believed in Jesus for salvation. And to repent simply means to turn the other way or to change your mind and direction. To turn away from what? To turn away from sin. Well, sin is doing anything that God commands us not to do or not doing anything that God commands us to do, okay? So to repent of our sins and then to believe in the name of Jesus as the only way to receive forgiveness and eternal life. And if you're, if this, you're like hearing this and you're like, I'm doing that right now. If you're doing that for the first time today, we absolutely want to talk to you after service when we're singing the song. Uh, we'll have the elders out on the sides ready for prayer. We would love to talk to you about that because we want to walk with you through it. It's the most exciting, amazing thing that could ever happen in your life. As the Lord reveals who Jesus is and you believe and you repent and believe. Uh, maybe it isn't the first time you've heard all this, but suddenly something just like, it clicked and now your eyes are open. We want to talk to you too, so come talk to us. We would love to talk to you. And then there's also people who are already believers, like the people who, excuse me, those who are already believers who are sitting in here, we also can't forget the message of repent and believe. We need to remember that because our entire Christian walk is one of sin, sinning, getting the conviction of sin, repenting of that sin, and receiving forgiveness. Like it's a cyclical thing on our way to perfection. We move from degree to degree of glory more into the image of Christ. That's what the sanctification journey is. We fall down, we scrape our knees. Thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness. Repent and keep moving forward. So we need to remember this message as well, even as believers. It's a lifelong process of sanctification on our way to perfection. And as we were repenting and turning to follow Jesus, we need to remember what Levi did when he answered the call. Let's remember that it's worth leaving everything behind to follow Jesus. It's worth it. It's worth leaving everything behind to follow Jesus. To know Jesus as your Lord is worth more than anything you could ever think or imagine. Nothing else in your life is eternal. Nothing. There's no one who will never fail you except for Jesus. Everyone else that you put your trust in, including yourself, is gonna let you down at some point. It's only Jesus that can be taken from you. Everything else could be taken from you but Jesus. So we should be ready to slaughter our oxen and burn our plow to follow the Lord. Leave it all behind. Which makes me want to add a very important question to this point. It's worth leaving everything behind to follow Jesus. What are you still holding on to? What are you still holding on to? What are you struggling to let go of? Or maybe just stubbornly unwilling to let go of? That's real. Is there something in your life that is hindering your ability to wholeheartedly and 100% follow Jesus? Could be your job or a career path that you've chosen. Not to steal Duncan's story, but I like he's, he had a job that had him working on Sundays, and he's like, I need to be with the Fellowship of the Believers. So it's like, let's get a different job. Maybe it's a hobby. 
doesn't mean it's a bad hobby. It could be a good hobby. I think good things can become bad things when our priorities are out of alignment. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe there's a relationship that is hindering your ability to follow the Lord 100%. We should be willing to give that up. Maybe it's a habit. There's absolutely unhealthy and sinful habits that we can pick up that we should definitely abandon for the sake of following Jesus. Could be a way of thinking. Maybe it's just selfishness and pride. For the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, it's worth leaving whatever it is behind. And all of my fans of the movie Frozen say, let it go. Come on, kids, you know the song, right? Let it go. (laughs) And the last point or uh, question, really, that I want us to consider today is this. Who do I view like the Pharisees viewed the tax collectors? Who do I view like the Pharisees viewed the tax collectors? They hated the tax collectors. Now, we might not outright say that we hate anybody because, come on, we're Christians. Christians don't hate anybody. We would never say that. But maybe our actions are speaking it loud and clear. The things that we do might be saying it a lot louder than our own voice. Are there people that you actively avoid interacting with? Are there people that you feel are beneath you or that you're better than? Are there people that you lack compassion for or maybe you willingly withhold compassion from? Are there people that you just will not forgive or people you refuse to show mercy to? These are hard questions to ask, but even harder questions to answer if we're honest. And we need to be honest. And as we consider kind of all those questions I just asked, I want us to look at what Jesus said about this in Matthew 18. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Which I'm sure he thought was very generous. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Illustration being like, all the times, you always forgive. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold, which is just an absurd amount of gold, was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he, his wife, and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him canceled the debt, and let him go. Now that's amazing. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. It's change, comparatively. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servants fell on his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. That's exactly what he said. But he refused Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. 
When the other servants saw what happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. And here's the crux. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The Bible encourages us a lot. But the Bible also cuts and it challenges. And when we read stuff like this, we can't soften the blow. I don't think the Lord wanted us to soften the blow. He wants us to sit with the, un, the very uncomfortable tension we just read. That it would challenge and it would cut us. So like I said, these are hard questions to ask and to answer. But I think there's an even bigger challenge that God wants us to feel today. We might claim that we don't hate anyone like the Pharisees hated the tax collectors. But if there's only one way for people to meet Jesus and come to a saving faith to receive forgiveness and be saved from God's wrath on their sin for eternity, and that way is through us telling the good news about Jesus. If that's the case, if that is true, then how much do we hate them by not telling them? Wasn't it like Penn from Penn and Teller? Yeah, and he, he was like, if you really believe this and you don't tell people about it, how much do you hate them? And that's an atheist saying that. He's not a believer as far as I know now. I don't know, maybe the Lord saved him. That'd be awesome. But how much do you have to hate someone not to, to know the truth and not tell them? Do we have enough compassion in our hearts for the lost to tell them the gospel? Or are we just fine with them going to hell? We need to get out of the holy huddle and do what Jesus said. He went to the sick and he called sinners to repentance. Somebody stepped out of the holy huddle to tell you. Someone stepped out of their comfort zone to reach out and tell you the good news of who Jesus is and what he did for you. They made room in their schedule to tell you. They let their life get impacted to tell you the good news about Jesus. So we need to do the exact same thing for others. Can you guys stand to your feet, please?